turn with me to the book of First Timothy. We are beginning a new sermon series today at Emmaus entitled The Household of God. And in this series, we'll walk through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young church leader named Timothy. Now, if you were to zoom out and look at the New Testament as a whole, you would recognize that Paul and Timothy had a very special relationship. It was unique in many ways. Paul had sort of taken Timothy under his wing, so to speak. The relationship was the kind of thing where Paul was very much the discipler. You know, he was the, the sort of mentor type figure. And Timothy was the disciplee or the protege type figure. And it's evident that Paul had poured himself into this. He was highly invested in seeing to it that Timothy was strong in the faith seeing to it that Timothy was ready to face the trials of ministry that would inevitably come. In fact, Paul became so invested in Timothy's faith and in Timothy's ministry that we see in verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul saw himself as more than a mentor. He saw Timothy as more than a protege. Paul refers to Timothy in verse 2 as his true child in the faith. So you can see there that, that Paul was something of a spiritual father to Timothy. He loved this young church leader dearly, much in the same way that a, a father loves a son. And yet at the same time, the love that Paul had for Timothy did not in any way obscure the fact that Paul was an apostle of the Lord. Yes, he loved Timothy. He loved Timothy like a father loves a son. But Paul's highest allegiance, his ultimate aim, belonged to the Lord Jesus who had called him out of darkness and who had appointed him to be an apostle. This is really what we see in the very first verse of the book. Look at it, verse 1. Paul claims that he is an apostle by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. So from the very get-go of 1 Timothy, we actually see that there are two things that more or less characterize this letter. On the one hand, this letter is characterized by Paul's apostolic authority. Like in whatever Paul writes in this letter, he is speaking for the Lord. He is commissioned by Christ to instruct Timothy. Which means that every last word of instruction that we read in this letter carries with it the weight of divine authority. And yet on the other hand, as we've seen, here there is a, a real fatherly love for Timothy that pulsates through this letter. So that even as Paul insists upon the authority of his instruction, even as he insists on the truthfulness of what he's saying, this is not being done in a way that is domineering. It doesn't come across as the high and mighty apostle barking orders at the lowly Timothy. No, nothing could be further from the case. Really what Paul is doing here is he is marrying love with authority so that authority can actually be a means of expressing love for another person in Christ. And by doing this, Paul is, is actually setting the tone for what he's going to say to Timothy throughout this 
letter. But this book isn't just about that. It's, it's not just about the relationship that existed between Paul and Timothy. Sure, it's about that to some extent, but it's about much more. Ultimately, this letter is about the church. It's about the church. Paul even says so himself. Right there in the middle of the letter, Paul tells Timothy exactly why it is he is writing. Chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says this. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which Paul says is the church of the living God. So he's saying that the reason this matters so much, the reason why Timothy needs to know this really has to do with the nature and the calling of the church. Because in verse 15, Paul says that the church is actually the pillar and foundation of the truth. So let's not miss what's being said here. Pillars and foundations are load-bearing. That's why every house has them. They bear the weight of the physical structure of the house so that the house can remain standing, so that the house can be structurally sound. And in many ways, when it comes to the truth of the gospel, that's what the church does. That's that's what we do. That's what we're doing through the confession of our faith in Christ. And really, this brings me to the main point of the sermon for this morning. The main thing I want to impress upon you today is that the church is called to devote itself to gospel doctrine. We're like a a pillar or a foundation. We are called to be load-bearing so that in all that we do, in all that we teach, we are remaining devoted to the task of holding up the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And what is that truth? Well, Paul tells us in verse 16, of chapter 3. He says that this truth is that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So that verse right there, verse 16, it's basically a summary of the truth to which we must be Devoted. In a nutshell, that is the gospel doctrine that we as a church are called to uphold. And really, this is why Paul writes as he does at the beginning of this letter. Because as we'll see, Timothy is facing a huge problem in his ministry context. They're in the church where he's serving in the city of Ephesus. The very truth of the gospel is being threatened. We'll see that it's being threatened by false teachers. It's being threatened by the the spread of doctrinal error. So with this in mind, let's let's read our text for today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll read the first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, 
so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. In these verses, I believe that Paul is emphasizing three things. He emphasizes three things about the nature of the church and its calling. So let's look at each of these three things. The first thing that Paul emphasizes is a charge that must be delivered. This is what we see in verses 3 and 4. Just notice there in verse 3 how Paul gets right down to business. A lot of the time in in, in his letters, Paul will make some extensive preliminary remarks about different things before he gets to the main point of the letter. But that's not what happens in 1 Timothy. It's not that kind of letter. No, Paul goes straight from a a quick, concise greeting to the issue at hand. And the first thing that Paul does is he reminds Timothy just how urgent the situation was. And this isn't the first time Paul had addressed this. We see in verse 3 that at some point before this letter was written, Paul and Timothy had parted ways. Paul went on to Macedonia And Timothy stayed behind at Ephesus so that he could lead and care for the church in that city. But before Paul left, he gave to Timothy some parting words to consider. He warned Timothy that there will be people who do things and say things that threaten the church's devotion to the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, you need to deal with that threat. You need to address that threat directly by charging those people, by charging those false teachers not to do or say anything that will undermine gospel doctrine in the church. Now what's so striking to me about this is that the very last thing that Paul said to Timothy before they parted ways is also the very first thing that Paul says to Timothy In this letter. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me like this was very important to Paul. Like when Paul thought of the church at Ephesus, when he prayed for them, 
when he considered their future, there was really one thing on his mind. There was one thing that mattered to him above everything else. And it was this, that the church at Ephesus would remain devoted to the gospel, which meant that those who were teaching contrary to the gospel, those who were undermining gospel doctrine should not be given a hearing. Instead, they should be charged not to teach anything that was out of step with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Paul also says that they should be charged not to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. Look there at verse 4. It says this preoccupation with myths and genealogies, all it did was promote pointless speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now this word for stewardship refers to the management of a household. So what Paul is saying here is that just as a home or a family functions best when it is well managed, when it is orderly, so it is with the church. The household of God is faithful and honoring to her Lord when it is ordered by gospel doctrine. At our house where I live with my family, there's hanging on the wall a family code that we try to live by. It's a list of of resolutions that we want to bring order to our home so that we can orient all of the life of our family around the kingdom of God. And for the church, that's what gospel doctrine does. That's what gospel doctrine is. It is the code that properly orders the household of God. It is the code that sets us up as a church to be a pillar and foundation for the truth. So that's the first thing that Paul emphasizes. It's it's the charge that must be delivered, the charge to not teach anything that undermines gospel doctrine. Look with me at the second thing Paul emphasizes. It's the aim of the charge. So there's a charge that must be delivered. And now we're looking at the aim of this charge in verse 5. The entire goal and purpose of what Paul is writing here to Timothy, he says, is love. It's love. That's why this was such an urgent matter because Jesus said to his disciples in John 13 that the world will know that we belong to him by one thing. It's by the way that we love. The church of the living God is meant to be recognized by this. We are meant to be a community that is defined by love. And how do we know what it means to love? Like, where do we learn what love really is? Well, we learn it through the gospel because it's, it's through the gospel that we learn that, that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the gospel that shows us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. That's how we know what love is. We know it by beholding the love of Jesus Christ in the gospel of our salvation. This is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that it was actually the love of Christ that controlled him, that compelled him. Paul understood something. 
He understood that the love that had been revealed to him in the gospel was meant to be the defining reality of his life and ministry. And it's the same for us. The life that we share in the household of God is defined by the love of Jesus Christ. That's why the aim of the charge is love. And in verse 5, Paul says that the kind of love we're talking about issues from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. So just, just notice what Paul is doing here. He's actually drawing a sharp contrast between those who are devoted to, to myths and genealogies versus those who are devoted to true gospel doctrine. Essentially what Paul's saying is that devotion to the gospel produces in the church a love that comes from a heart that is pure, a conscience that is good, a faith that is sincere. But those false teachers who had crept into the church at Ephesus, who were troubling the saints, those false teachers were not good or pure or sincere. No, Paul said that they had swerved from these things. They had deviated from purity and goodness and sincerity. And instead, these false teachers had wandered into vain discussion. Vain discussion. And what did this vain discussion center around? Well, in addition to being about myths and endless genealogies, apparently it also had to do with the law. Because look at verse 7. It says these people desired to be teachers of the law. But Paul said that there is a, a problem with this. Because even as these supposed teachers of the law were making confident assertions, in reality, they did not understand the very thing that they were claiming to be able to teach. Which is why Paul is going to set the record straight. Which is the very next thing that he's going to emphasize. Verses 8 through 11. He emphasizes an understanding that is essential to the charge. So we've looked at the charge that must be delivered. We've looked at the aim of that charge. Now we're going to look at an understanding that's essential to that charge. Put your eyes on verse 8. In this verse, Paul makes a definitive statement about the law. He says that the law is good. Now, just so we're clear... Paul's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the commandments and the ordinances that God gave to Israel. This is what was written and passed down to us in the Old Testament. And Paul says that all of that is good. But Paul also qualifies this statement. He says that the goodness of the law is actually a, a qualified goodness. Because in a fun little play on words... Paul tells us that the law must be used lawfully. It must be used in accordance with its intended purpose. So contrary to what these false teachers thought, you can't just make of the law whatever you want. It, it's not subject to our revisions. No, Paul is telling us that a true understanding of the law boils down to this, that there is a proper use of the law, which means that there is also an improper use of the law. 
And in order to distinguish between its proper use and its improper use, Paul says two things about the law. He says who the law is not for, and then he tells us who the law is for. So first, who is the law not for? It's not for those who are just. That's, that's what Paul says. So if you're a person in whom there is no corruption, if you are without fault or wrongdoing, then you, you are right with God, right? You can, you can go on your merry way and not worry about the law. It doesn't apply to you. It's not for you. But the problem is that none of us can do that. None of us can do that because left to ourselves, no one is just. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that there is no one who is righteous. No one can say, there is no unrighteousness in me. We wouldn't dare say that because when the law speaks, when it addresses us, Paul says every mouth is stopped because through the law comes knowledge of sin. So none of us can stand before God without fault because all of us have sinned and have fallen short of his glory, which means that far from being just, we are decidedly unjust. And Paul actually says that's who the law is for. It's for the unjust. It's for those who are not right with God. In Galatians 3.19, Paul states this very clearly. He asks the question, why did God give the law? Like, why the law? And Paul answers his own question by saying, the law was given for transgression. It was given because people transgress the moral will of God. You see, God made the world so that there's a way we're supposed to live, and there's also a way we're not supposed to live. And left to ourselves, people will choose the way that we're not supposed to live every single time. This is something that every last human being does. You parents in the room, you know this. All too well. You know it from experience because you can recall bringing that sweet little baby home from the hospital, so cute and innocent. And be honest, even though you know the doctrine of original sin, you were wondering how could how could anything so precious ever do something wrong? But then lo and behold, about 16 to 18 months later, you're singing a different tune because when you go to put that precious little angel in the car seat, what do they do? They defy you, right? They, they arch their back. They scream with a cry that curdles your blood. No! Now, they don't have all the words to describe what they're feeling, but they still know how to get the point across. And the point is this, that that child has no intention of getting in that car seat, and they have every intention of defying your parental authority. That moment comes in every human life. The moment where the rebellion, the, the, the sinfulness of the heart is exposed. And that moment is exactly what the law is for. 
it addresses us in our sinful condition. God had to have a way to communicate with us that if we insist on transgressing his moral will, if we, if we turn away from living as he has called us to live, then we're not going to be okay. And just so we're not left wondering what transgression looks like, Paul says he actually includes a laundry list. He, he lays out 13 things that describe the characteristics and conduct of people for whom the law was given. It's all there in verses 9 and 10. It says the law was given for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners. It's given for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now notice something about this list. Notice that it doesn't list mere behaviors, right? It, it doesn't say that the law is for sexual immorality. The, it doesn't say that the law is for lying. It's not a list of bad behaviors in the abstract. Instead, what we see in this list is that it's been carefully chosen so that no one can read this and say, well, I may occasionally lapse into sexual immorality, but that doesn't make me sexually immoral, does it? Because I'm essentially a good person the rest of the time. No one gets to read what Paul is writing here and say, well, I've been known to tell a fib from time to time. But am I really a liar? Like, is it, is it really that big of a deal? The law chimes in and it says, yes, it is. It really is that big of a deal. You're, you're not someone who occasionally does a sexually immoral thing. You are a sexual sinner who has transgressed God's will concerning your sexuality. You're not someone who tells a little white lie now and again. No, you are a liar who willingly deceives and who willingly suppresses the truth. You guys, sin is not just something that we do. No, sin actually says something about who we are. We are sinners. We are sinful. The law attacks us at the root of our sinful condition in order to put us in touch with the very real, very heavy burden of our guilt. The law is divine real talk. Now, I don't know about you, but when I slow down and start to take inventory of my own life in light of what Paul is saying here, I don't feel so good because I, I realize that the law is not just describing bad behavior. The law is describing me. I am those things that Paul is lift, listing, like left to myself. That's who I am. And I feel the weight of that reality. Like with every item that gets mentioned here in this text, the weight increases a little bit. It, it, it adds a little more to the burden with each word. 
It says the law is for abusers and murderers. Well, and then the burden gets a little heavier, doesn't it? The law is for the sexually immoral. Oh, the weight piles on. The law is for liars, deceivers, perjurers. The pressure of the guilt increases. It's for the ungodly, the profane, the disobedient. Can you feel your knees starting to buckle? The law is laid down to condemn sinners. Now your back is giving out. The burden has become too great and and you've reached the point where you can't handle this for another second. And it's like, is there any way for this to be taken from me? Is, is, Is there something I can do to get rid of all this baggage that I have accumulated over a lifetime of sinning? This is actually exactly what happens at the beginning of John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress. The story opens on its main character, a man named Christian. Just listen to how Bunyan introduces him. Bunyan writes, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where there was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. Bunyan says, I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face turned from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled and not being able any longer to contain it, he broke out with a lamentable cry saying, what shall I do? Friends, that's where the law leaves us. It leaves us burdened with the knowledge that we are guilty sinners. It leaves us deeply disturbed in our consciences and at our wits end asking, what shall I do? Later on in the story, everything changes for Christian. There's this this pivotal moment in his journey where he comes to the one place where his burden of guilt can be removed. Bunyan describes how Christian comes to a hill and he ascends to the top of that hill to find a cross and a sepulcher, which if you don't know what a sepulcher is, it's basically a tomb or a grave. And when Christian comes to that cross and that sepulcher, Bunyan says that in his dream, he saw that just as Christian looked upon the cross, his burdens loosed from his shoulders. His burden fell from his back and it began to tumble and it tumbled down and down and down until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in. And Bunyan says that when it fell into that tomb, he says, I saw it no more. And it was after this that Christian sang a song of deliverance. His heart being free from the burden of his sin overflows with these words. He sings, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this! Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? 
O blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. You guys, that's what the law is good for. We have a burden. We are guilty. We stand condemned and the law will not let us forget it. It haunts us with that fact. Wherever we go, whatever we try to do, the law is hounding us. And it is by this hounding that the law actually drives us to the foot of the cross where we see that there is a man who was put to shame for us so that we would no longer need to ask, what shall I do? But instead we can rejoice because that man said from the cross, it is done. The law has been fulfilled. The righteousness that the law requires from us is actually imputed as a free gift that will never be revoked. Your every last transgression has been nailed to that cross once and for all. And so when God looks upon you, he no longer sees the ways that you have broken his law. He no longer sees your faults or your wrongdoing or your corruption. No, he instead now sees the spotless law-keeping righteousness of his son, and he is well pleased. It's this understanding that Paul is driving home in verse 11. Paul is saying that the law can only be properly understood in relation to what he calls the gospel of the glory of the blessed God that had been entrusted to him and has, that has been entrusted to us as well. And yet this is the very thing that these false teachers in Ephesus didn't seem to get. They couldn't see that for all their bloviating about the law, they didn't have the one thing that was necessary for understanding it. They, they did not have the gospel because they had devoted themselves to something else. Now, I realize that at a church like Emmaus, it's easy to assume that that'll never happen to us, right? We'll, we'll never be like those false teachers. We aren't in danger of losing the gospel. We're not in danger of so royally misunderstanding the law. In fact, all signs really point to us being pretty devoted to gospel doctrine. Like if, if doctrinal error were to be preached from the pulpit at Emmaus, I think that the church would sniff that out right away. And while I'm exceedingly thankful for that, I also think it would be a mistake for us to presume that we're impervious to the kind of threat that's described here in 1 Timothy. Because this is the sort of thing that can happen so subtly, so craftily, so quickly, that you don't necessarily see it coming. It's possible to become a church that maybe affirms the gospel on paper, but really functionally lives by the law. It's possible to use the word gospel a lot while also being led down the rabbit trail of vain speculation. Friends, this could happen at Emmaus. This could happen to us. Even with all the theological resources we have, we should not underestimate the human heart's ability to pervert and twist the things of God. And on top of that, we have an enemy who is working against us. 
The devil is a liar who hates the truth, and he, he would love nothing more than to be able to destroy the pillar and foundation of the truth. So because of this, I, I want to conclude by giving you a very simple pastoral charge. I believe that above everything else, what I'm getting ready to say will be the single greatest indicator of our devotion to the gospel. So as one of your pastors appointed to care for you, appointed to keep watch over your soul, I charge you, Emmaus Church, to delight yourself in the riches of Christ that are yours in the gospel. I want to make an observation about human nature. Are you ready? Here's my observation. Devotion is downstream from delight. Devotion is downstream from delight. It's true whether you're talking about individuals or an entire congregation. We will always devote ourselves to what brings us delight. Your commitments in life will always follow what has gotten a hold of your heart. So if we're going to be a church that is devoted to gospel doctrine, the real question is, are we delighting in the gospel? Are we delighting to search out new depths and new dimensions of the truth that is in Jesus Christ? Are are we rejoicing day by day in the grace that we have received from him? Grace that has lifted our burden. Grace that has swept away our condemnation. I mean, that's the dream for Emmaus, is it not? That we would not only display and declare the gospel, but that all our displaying and all our declaring would be because we're delighting ourselves in the one who is made known to us in the gospel. The one who loved us before the foundations of the world were laid. The one who saved us with his own costly blood shed upon the cross. The one who is washing us today in the pure water of his word. The one who will surely complete the work that he has begun in us so that on the final day, we will behold him face to face. We will become like him because we will see him as he is. Just listen to these words from the Puritan minister, John Flavel. I'll I'll leave you with this. Flavel says that when we behold the glory and grace of Christ in the gospel, We are witnessing the very essence of all delights and pleasures, the very soul and substance of them. As all rivers are gathered into the ocean, which is the congregation or meeting place of all the waters of this world, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. His excellencies are pure and unmixed. He is a sea of sweetness without one drop of gall. Friends, submerging your heart into that sea of sweetness is the most effective way to safeguard our church from drifting away from the truth that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for the gospel. By it, we know that you've loved us with an everlasting love. And so we pray today 
that you would make us fiercely devoted to the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Would you cause Emmaus to stand as a pillar and foundation on which the truth of the gospel is resting? Would you keep us from error that destroys our devotion? Would you keep us from false teaching that would harm our faithfulness to you? And instead, God, would you make us people who are known by our love? And we know this, Lord, that love always rejoices in what is true. So we pray today, give us a heart to rejoice in the truth of your gospel here and now as we revel in the excellencies of Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.